0: The podcast you're listening to is part of Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, which is a member of the Batman on Film podcast network. For more information, go to batman on filmcom where you Just are! To check out my ah. in the credits. Quite safely that Get away! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell Especially
1: when the video sales Are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X
0: Academy six This is sequel cast And they all runs past that following a franchise until the better This is sequel cast
1: And your host have asked that I informed you that the show will now begin.
0: Hello and welcome to Sequelcast to What a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host Matt Bradley Sherge with me is William freshher.
1: It's a long day for everybody, so let's end this on a positive note.
0: Uh, we'll try with this movie. We are closing out <laughs> our look at the fugitive duology with the second film in the series, U.S. Marshals, directed by Stuart Baird, uh, produced by Ann Copelson and Arnold Copelson, written by Roy Huggins and John Pogue. Um, this came out in March 6, 1998 in the United States with a runtime of 131 minutes. According to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of $45 million, it made $102 million, um, which is okay, but it's not Fugitive numbers. And uh, aside from, uh, you had some people from that first film come in this one, Tommy Lee Jones and Joe Pantoliano, but um, the new Fugitive, this time around, is Wesley Snipes, and also in the cast is Robert Downey Jr., Kate Milligan, and Ir- Irene uh, Jacob, with music by Jerry Goldsmith and cinematography by Andrew Bart Koek and edited by Terry Rawlings. So, yeah. U.S. Marshals, 98. Um, Thrasher, when did you first see this film, or did you even know it was a fugitive sequel? Because I don't think, like, the box art makes it that obvious. I knew it was
1: a fugitive sequel at the time, but only because, you know, I've, I've at that point, I was pretty into movies and, and filmmaking, so, like, I... I I knew enough about its production to know that it was a sequel to *The Fugitive*, but it really doesn't do much to establish that fact. Although the other the other thing, though, I remember *The Fugitive* was so big when it came out that there was talk of doing sequels even back then. And as I recall, uh, giving Tommy Lee Jones's character his own movie was one of the first, or one of the first or second sequel rumor that came out of *The Fugitive*. So it, it's not as if this was unexpected. Right, what
0: I heard is uh, Harrison Ford was offered, I got first offered to do a sequel and Harrison Ford turned it down, uh, which I think makes sense. I mean, I'm not Harrison Ford, but if I was in the situation, I'd turn it down as well because The Fugitive is such a perfect sort of self-contained movie, not everything needs a sequel. Um, However, if you're going to do it with someone else, Tommy Lee Jones is the natural choice. He had the more showy part in the original that won him an Oscar, like... They, so it's not a surprise they made a sequel in some respects. Um, but I'm looking here on domestic gross, domestic meaning uh, North America, uh, for 1998 when U.S. Marshals came out. So guess where it placed on here? Domestically, it only made $57 million. I bet it's like 11th. What would you say uh, if I told you 36th? Oh wow,
1: I, I would have expected Tommy Lee Jones to be a bigger draw at that point, because this is, this is after Men in Black.
0: Right. Um, I, I I don't know what it was, you know, I think it... But below it, at 37, was the Leonardo DiCaprio star uh, Man in the Iron Mask, which, of course, is one of the Three Musketeers novels. Huh. Um, uh, above it, at 35, is the um, somewhat controversial... Um, Foreign film uh, winner "Life Is Beautiful" with Roberto Benigni.
1: Oh wow! Hey, actually, can you indulge me? So the other big movie that Tommy Lee Jones in was in that year was uh, "Toy Soldiers." Where did "Toy Soldiers" rank that
0: year? Ah, that was the um, that's the that's one that's sort of like Gremlins, but it's with the it's by Joe Dante, isn't it? Uh,
1: yes, it's a, a bunch of uh, action, a bunch of G.I. Joe-style action figures come to life and start trying to kill people.
0: It's a comedy. It's not showing up here as Toy Soldiers. It has a different title, I think. Um, give me a second. We'll oh,
1: Small talking. Soldiers. I've...
0: Small, thank you. Um, Phil Hartman was in it, I remember that much. Yeah, I think... Uh, that, okay, yes. Um, at 42nd was Small Soldiers. Uh, above it at 41 was Halloween H20. And below it at forty three uh, was an IMAX movie of all things, T Rex: Back to the Crustaceous. Which, I, um, wow! Really? Given how it's big a... dinosaurs were around this time, even though it's was after Jurassic Park.
1: So Small uh, Soldiers was that far under U.S.
0: Marshals. It was, but to, to give you context for ninety eight domestic gross, some of the big movies that year. I'll give you the top. Uh, I mean, I'll give you the top ten, just for historical context. From the number bottom one up. was. Uh, Yeah, bottom up, yeah, that's a better (laughs) way to do it. Number ten was Patch Adams Wow. Williams, which um, loosely based on a true story. Um, Number nine, Godzilla, the U.S. version with Matthew Broderick. Number eight, Deep Impact. Uh, I remember this because this was, 98 was the first year I had a job. It was um, the summer before my junior year in high school, and I worked at a movie theater when this came out. And Deep Impact came out the first weekend I worked. Um, So, Deep Impact came out before uh, Armageddon, which is higher up in this list. We'll get there. Number seven, Rush Hour. Number six, Dr. Doolittle, the Eddie Murphy one. Um, Number five, The Waterboy. Number four, A Bug's Life, the Pixar cartoon. Number three, There's Something About Mary. Uh, Number two, Armageddon. Number one, Saving Private Ryan. Huh. Um, should be noted uh, at number 11, then we'll get back to talking about U.S. Marshals, dear listeners, uh, is a movie we talked about very early on the sequel cash show, Leave the Weapon 4.
1: So, in short, 1998 was a year of contrasts in the
0: movies. It was, and I think that the big thing at the time was Armageddon and Deep Impact were both, you know, kind of like <laughs> ripoffs of each other. Um, and although Deep Impact came out first, and it was. Uh, a DreamWorks film, you know, Armageddon did much better. Oh, it was also The Year of Shakespeare in Love. Jeez, that was quite a long time ago. Oh, wow. A lot of things going on. Okay. That's neither here nor there 98. So to That's answer like your question, office. I didn't see this yes. until last night. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, not even on TV or anything? Uh,
1: not as I recall, no. Which which is is strange, because I like Tom Lee Jones. I love Wesley Snipes.
0: Yeah, um, I saw this in the theater with my dad, because uh, we both liked The Fugitive, and he, he really likes Tommy Lee Jones and stuff, and um, afterwards, the, the car ride home was just kind of silent. <laughs> it, I, I don't think we hated the movie, we just were kind of indifferent, and when I was rewatching this, the things that came to mind that I remembered about it was a, a plot twist near the end, um, something involving a pair of glasses and um, you had an actress that was made to look a lot like uh, Hillary Clinton who was the superior to uh, Tommy Lee Jones Do you think that was intentional? Uh, Absolutely, yeah Hmm. You had the pantsuits, you had the teased up hair I mean it also was the 90s so you have to (laughs) take that into consideration That's true, a lot of people had that look (laughs) But I think it was sort of no accident Um, But yeah, with, with U.S. Marshals Um, An interesting thing is, uh, I did some research on uh, the director and writer. The director, Stuart Beard, uh, was initially an editor who only has a few directing credits. Um, Aside from that, before U.S. Marshals, he did a a Steven Seagal film called Executive Decision. And afterwards, he did a Star Trek movie that is um, pretty reviled, Star Trek Nemesis. That's the final one with the Next Generation crew. Which isn't bad, it's just not good. Uh, It's... uh, (coughs) Yeah. Uh, But, I mean, he's edited such classic films as um, The Omen. Um, He did the more recent James Bond Casino Royale. I say recent, that's like over a decade at this point. Um, (laughs) Did Lethal Weapon, did a lot of stuff for Richard Donner. Um, Edited the new Tomb Raider movie. So the editing is his bread and butter, but he did the directing thing for a bit. Um, And I... I would say visually this movie just looks kind of bland. Well, just like it, just like The Fugitive, it, it has a
1: feel of like of a TV Television. Movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a good TV movie, like, you know, trying to, a TV movie trying to escape the limitations of being a TV movie, but, but it still feels like a TV movie. It still has that kind of, there's a workman-like quality to it.
0: There is, and, um, You know, had you told me this was directed by the person that directed The Fugitive, I would have believed you. Like, I think it looks like it's part of that universe. I don't think he does anything crazy with the colors or the shaky cam or anything. Um, uh, Well, well, I mean,
1: it's almost the same movie, but giving focus to Tommy Lee Jones' character rather than splitting it 50-50 between him and the protagonist.
0: Right. Um, A notable thing about the writer, John Pogue, he had uh, read a pretty good profile with him um, from... I think 97 or something Uh, so he was a a young man that was a a screenwriter and had written something I don't know like a screenplay a year for seven years and and couldn't sell anything to save his life and uh, then he said okay I'm gonna make something commercial so he wrote a screenplay called the man with the football that was actually about uh, never produced into a movie yet um, but it was about the they called the football was the nickname for the uh, briefcase with the nuclear codes oh yes right and this became a hit screenplay. And, um, you know, he made, and a lot of screenwriters do this. Uh, they make money for several years, uh, get paid great money to, to write screenplays on movies that never get produced. Because a lot of stuff just doesn't advance past that screenwriting stage for whatever reason. True. Where
1: like, uh, you do the third draft of a script that ends that up having too. ten yep. drafts yep. before yeah, it gets Yeah, yeah. He
0: did a lot of polishes as well. And, uh, U.S. Marshals, um, was his first, um, credit for a movie that that came out but then afterwards um, I think he's probably better known for writing uh, the skulls
1: oh yeah
0: which he 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 went to Yale for college and sort of loosely based on the secret society stuff Um, but since then you know he's he's directed in a few movies and he's also written stuff like ghost ship and the remake of rollerball so um, action movies like this are are sort of in his wheelhouse and it, it's fascinating. This only has one credited screenwriter, unlike *The Fugitive*, which I think had ten. Hmm. Did, yes. did you know the end, the ending to this was supposed to be different? No, that no, I did not know that. Uh, what was the intended ending? Okay, so um, I, I, we don't say spoiler warning on the show, but perhaps we should. But Originally the Wesley Snipes character, and this is a pretty major change they had to do with Reshoots, uh, based on my research, he was supposed to be actually guilty. He was not an innocent man. And there was not the plot twist with Robert Downey Jr. at the end. But then test audiences complained that well, they wanted Tommy Lee Jones chasing an innocent man just like in the first movie. So they had to go back and back and change a lot of things. Yeah, actually I'm I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up.
1: So so that that was something uh, that didn't quite work for me uh, with this movie, and and I'm I'm not I am not opposed to the idea that once again Tommy Lee Jones is trying to track down an innocent man, uh, Wesley Snipes being that innocent man. But that being said, the the revelation that Wesley Snipes' character is innocent that either needs to be front loaded into the movie, or or that revelation needs to come. Uh, near the climax of the movie, as it is, the reveal <laughs> that he's it innocent, in the, the, the idea that he's innocent, it, it, it comes up, it's very unsatisfying because uh, where the place in the middle where that information is revealed. And as a result, I feel like it undercuts a lot of the potential tension of Tommy Lee Jones's investigation.
0: Yeah, had he saved it to the end, you know, the movie could have kind of kept you guessing with it, uh, and it could have led to a better final revelation. Um, at the time when this movie came out, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, was having a hard year with um, the drug addiction and so forth, and he calls U.S. Marshals the worst action movie of all time, and he says he regrets... He would go in the press and say he hated the movie and don't go see it. Oh, wow. Um, which which is <laughs> pretty unusual. We've mentioned this on the show before, but, you know, unless you're like Shia LaBeouf or something, you don't go trashing the movies that you star in. Um... So, rel- related to all that, so when when
1: uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character was introduced pretty early on in the film, I just kind of spitballed and said, oh, okay, so Wesley Snipes is innocent, and Robert Downey Jr. is part of the cabal that set him up to take the fall for an operation gone wrong. And that was just me spitballing. There's nothing yeah. in the movie to indicate that, but Robert Downey Jr. is the third biggest name in this movie, so of course he has to be the villain.
0: Right, and but uh, I think initially, as as initially filmed, he was just doing his mission for revenge as his motive, um, which I think is a good enough motive. I think had they stuck with that original premise, uh, I, I, this is a movie I wouldn't mind seeing like a, a different cut of, but we don't have that unfortunately. But let's get into well, he, here's the, a question. Yeah, um, let's let's assume if the
1: movie had the original ending. Yeah. but Wesley Snipes played the Robert Downey Jr. part, and Robert Downey Jr. played the Wesley Snipes part. Do you think that's a better movie?
0: I do, um, because you could still have that dynamic of sort of the young hotshot and the experienced person, but it would give Tommy Lee Jones a bit of an edge. Uh, and, and they try to put an edge on Jones at the end of the film, uh, and Gerard, I mean, but um, it doesn't quite work. Hmm. But yeah, let's 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 get into this store. Uh, this movie proper. Uh, the way it begins, sort of like the James Bond movie, you begin with a self-contained mission, uh, and and this time, uh, Tommy Lee Jones is undercover in a um, fried chicken mascot suit. Yeah, we we
1: open. It's just like a, a a street corner in this neighborhood, and there's this lunch van selling fried chicken, and there's this big elaborate chicken costume, and I remember just thinking, oh god. He's gonna, that's gonna be Tommy Lee Jones under that chicken mask. Please don't be Tommy Lee Jones under that chicken mask. It is Tommy Lee Jones under that chicken mask. And that means Gerard is so willing to commit to this undercover master of disguise bit that he will make passable chicken clucking sounds when he's in a giant chicken costume.
0: But the disguise thing wasn't a
1: big part of the fugitive, was it? Well, no. It's just it's just that one scene where he and another and the other agent pretend they dress up like homeless people to sneak up on a guy. That's it. But this, it's like there's this. It's it's like a whole. It's like a small army of people in disguise around that neighborhood with Tommy Lee Jones as a giant chicken in the lead.
0: As we referenced before uh, last week, when we talked about the fugitive, this is more like something that should be in the Leslie Nielsen spoof "Wrongfully Accused." Yeah, that is exactly what I thought as well. (laughs) And you get kind of like this redneck Jerry Springer thing going on, where they go into this this house and Tommy Lee Jones punches a woman in the face and gets in trouble for excessive violence, which um, was big in the news uh, because of the uh, Rodney King and and all those sort of things.
1: so yeah, so this this crime family that they're busting up, as near as I can tell, this crime family they embezzle wigs. Yeah, everyone everyone in this crime syndicate has the craziest hair. Well,
0: and it's pretty horrific. You get one of um, timing Lee Jones's sort of uh, underlings shoots a man that's going towards his infant child. Like it's. That seems really unjustified to me. I don't know. Like Well, it you I think you're meant to think it's unjustified, but then it's
1: revealed they have a shotgun hidden in the crib.
0: Still, it Yeah, I know, but But it,
1: yeah, I mean true. Yeah, there there is there is weird. a ridiculous amount of force used used in this scene. I mean, if they're if they're really if they're really a crime family, they would have turned themselves in and then had their lawyer get them out on bond. <laughs> right. It's a
0: that's a weird way to start the movie, but that's what that's, that's how they do it. Uh, I was surprised that you had some more of the cast from the original aside from Tommy Lee Jones. Well, you it's had, like most of his team from the first movie is back. Um, yeah, the ones I recognized were Joe Pitaliano as Cosmo and Daniel Roebuck um, as the fellow with the mustache. Mm-hmm. And they, they have some of that banter, like in the original, sort of most, I think the best example of that here is they talk about uh, North Carolina versus South Carolina barbecue sauce. Oh, I love that exchange. Which, uh, why don't we explain for the listeners what that is? Because, it, I mean, in, in, in parts of the country, that's the United States is considered almost a religion.
1: Well, it's like is Texas I, is, considers
0: is, their chili. As I understand it, and keep
1: in mind, this is somebody who was born and raised uh, in Virginia, or as we like to call it, real Virginia. Uh, and it it comes down to a difference between whether the barbecue sauce is vinegar based or molasses based.
0: Right, in North Carolina, vine- barbecue is more vinegar. I've also the color of it is often yellow. It's more like a mustard. Um, and but the molasses base in South Carolina is more. Uh, a traditional what you would buy from a, a, the bottle on the store or get in your Mc, McRib or something. Um, I'm sure that I just mentioned a McRib in, in terms of South Carolina barbecue. I'm going to get murdered or something. Or, but we'll, we'll let that pass.
1: Yeah, although there's somebody who's going through McRib, McRib withdrawal who is going to start getting the shakes because you mentioned that.
0: It's not a terrible sandwich. It's just <laughs> you, have, you have a mixture of pork products in a rib mold. Yeah, it's, um, it,
1: it is a die-cast piece of meat. I cannot imagine what our listeners outside of the United States are making of this food item we're describing.
0: It was best used as a tie-in for the live-action Flintstones movie, and you can <laughs> catch us covering that at sequelcast2.podbean.com. It all comes around. Speaking of coming around, um, you after this opening sequence, which is as we mentioned, uses a lot of police force and so forth. Um, You get a cross-cut with the introduction of the character played by Wesley Snipes, um, who uh, has a lot of different aliases in the movie. Uh, Originally, Samuel L. Jackson was going to play this part. Really? Yeah, um, which would have been very different, I think. Wesley Snipes does a great job of underplaying the role, much like Harrison Ford did for his part in the first one. I think he's very good here.
1: Well, he he's introduced. He's just he's just an anonymous guy. He's a um, driver. You driving driver. driving a tow truck, and the only reason we know he's important is because he's Wesley Snipes. So we know that mm-hmm. he, he's been he's he's the second biggest name in the movie. So definitely, or no, I guess or would he have been the biggest at the time? I, I think no, this... with
0: Tommy Lee Jones and the Oscar, but but still, I mean, Wesley Snipes he had been in uh, a lot of movies. Uh, this was before Blade, which I think was maybe more of a mainstream hit for him. Yeah, I
1: I guess maybe then the biggest thing he had done before this was Two Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar and The Villain in Demolition Man.
0: Yeah, and he did a lot of um he did a lot of action movies and so forth that were you know bigger hits on video, but uh, yeah, as far as like more main street blockbusters as we're going to say. But anyway, he's driving he's driving right.
1: this uh tow truck and there's there's a businessman having a very businessman businessy phone call on his car phone. And when I say car phone, I literally mean car phone. It's one of those giant 80s car phones that plugs into a transmitter in your car. Uh yep. it, it is out of date by the standards of the late 90s. <laughs> Uh, but he's smoking a cigar and he drops it and the vehicle goes out of control. And the short version is, um, there's a horrible collision and the, uh, the truck, uh, the tow truck flips over. Wesley snaps, gets pretty badly or gets badly injured. And when the rescue workers pull him from his car, they discover a, uh, an, an unlicensed firearm, uh, hidden, uh, Velcroed under the dashboard uh, and after running as prince, discover that, that he's wanted in New York for, I think, two murders and an armed robbery.
0: Yeah, for murders of U.S. Marshals, and, and... Yeah, there's a whole... The plot for this movie is, I think, a bit too complicated for what they're trying to do, but... Well, it just re-
1: it reminds me of that line in The Simpsons where Homer just says, Wait a minute, you mean to tell me the cops' new internal affairs was setting them up the whole time? With- <coughs> I always think of that quote whenever this kind of story shows up in a movie.
0: Yeah, so as the story goes on, we learn that he... Um, well, had... he's a,
1: he was a former uh, United States Marine. Uh, yes. He's with, he specialized in secret operations and black ops, who mm-hmm. left the Marines, but he was sort of on retainer to the CIA, doing like dirty work off the books. And
0: the phrase they used to describe what he does is a a kite, meaning that if, you know, something happens or he gets caught, the U.S. government will deny all connection to him. He's someone who can be cut loose. Kept in a short string
1: and cut loose. uh, Which I believe is the origin of that phrase. But yeah, and so it turns out uh, two people in the CIA have been secretly selling state secrets to the Chinese government. uh, Robert Downey Jr. being one of them. And they were in danger of getting caught. So... They were going to, they were going to use Wesley Snipes. They were they were going to feed Wesley Snipes information to get him on site for a handoff, but then they were going to make that handoff go wrong and get everybody killed. But Wesley Snipes was too good and got away.
0: Yeah, we we learned a lot of this as the movie goes on. It's kind of dulled out in small information, but uh, the, the inciting incident of the film is. Uh, Wesley Snipes, along with other um, criminals, are being transported via plane, and Tommy Lee Jones is on this same plane.
1: Yeah, because one of the criminals he busted uh, in, uh, in that opening scene is on that same plane, and because sure. there's an issue of excessive force, as a sort of a as, as a political stunt, he's supposed to be on that transport. And when the prisoners get transferred to the federal prison, he's supposed to give a speech that makes the U.S. marshals look good.
0: That's right, and um I imagine you know. I really like how this plane looks; like it's not realistic. Well,
1: I don't. I mean, I don't know how. I I mean, I, I would presume that you might very well have planes for transporting uh, federal prisoners, sort of a, a Con Air situation. But it looks it looks like a plane trying to be the bus from the first movie. It's got the partitions. Yes. Uh, it's got well, these you, high-tech. I like you bugs. have
0: the security. Computerized security codes, where you can unlock certain uh, people when they go to the bathroom, but then the bathroom is an open door, so you can see what they're doing. But although they don't pay much attention to that, um, so what what happens is this plane is midair, and uh, one of the criminals, surprisingly not not one that we've seen in the plot so far, has jerry rigged uh, an explosive. Well, what, what it is, is, he says he has to go to the... He has, says he has to go to the
1: restroom, so they he goes in there. Well, it turns out, uh, hidden in the toilet paper roll are the pieces to make a zip gun. And a zip, for anyone who doesn't know, a zip gun is essentially... It's an improvised firearm that is pretty much only good for one shot. Um, uh, ever, ever since we've had uh, bullets that uh, have their own accelerant in their own casing, people have been able to make zip guns. And... He, you know he's going to use it to kill somebody so when he's going back to his seat um, it becomes clear that he's going—he's trying to kill uh, Wesley Snipes well, Wesley Snipes, again Wesley Snipes is too good so he sees this guy coming uh, is able to knock, uh, knock his hand out of the way but the zip gun goes off and ends up uh, blowing out the side of the plane uh, and all the debris gets clogged in the engine and the short of it is the plane's going to go
0: down <laughs> And, again, much like mirroring what happened in the first film, instead of a train, you get a plane. But I think this, uh, that goes off the rails and the people escape. But um, the way this goes down, I think this, this, to me, seemed like one of the slowest scenes in movie history. Well, it, go, plane... it goes on
1: for quite some time because yeah. you know, we we keep cutting back and forth between the the chaos on the section of the plane that's been decompressed in the cockpit, and we we pretty much see the pilot and co-pilot go through every emergency procedure in this crash.
0: Right. I mean, this looks fastidiously researched, but the the, the plane crash like has to do an emergency landing on a street with no cars on it. I thought, oh, that's convenient. But then, as it keeps on going, you know, it crashes through all these power lines, and tips over into this lake, and so it's upside down, partially underwater, and it's flooding. Uh, to- it's flooding, right? Tommy Lee Jones's company have to go and free people. He notices that Wesley Snipes' character frees himself with the trick of. Um, I've seen this in other movies, I swear, but where well, this, you take the. It's- Really to the glasses and use it as a lockpick.
1: Yeah, it's it's really clever because when when Wesley Snipes is in police custody and he has a cast on his hand from his injuries from the crash, like he gets into a sort of half tussle with one of the police detectives who happens to have glasses in his front pocket. He gets the glasses and takes the uh, takes one of the ear supports. What the hell are those called? (laughs) He um, takes the part of the glasses that goes over the ears.
0: <laughs> yes, the, the, I don't know what it's called either. I know what you mean, but yeah, the long part.
1: Yeah, so he he takes he takes that. So of course, the detective gets his glasses back. <clears throat> he hides that in his cast. He then uses that to pick the lock on his handcuffs when the plane is uh, going down. And that's pretty smart. So, although a part of me wonders, when was he planning on using that to escape? Was it going to be after the plane touches de- touched down?
0: It would have to be because when a plane is in the air there's never you can only go so far so maybe when yeah Well you can go very far but only in one direction Well yes but yeah you're you're stuck in a a vessel that is flying or it's just a little hallway with an open toilet But
1: Um, it's but it's a pretty it's a pretty tense scene and it's it's nice it's nice seeing Tommy Lee Jones. It's it's kinda like in the first movie, you know, he's got a job to do. And here he's got a job to do, he's gotta help get these prisoners transported safely to federal prison, so he's doing his damnedest to try to make sure everybody gets out of the
0: plane alive. Well when he actually gets Wesley Snipes to help him with the flashlight, and I think that's sort of a nice moment because he sees he recognizes the trick that Wesley Snipes did to get out of the handcuffs and says, Well here, why don't you help me out, let these people free? But of course Wesley Snipes eventually just leaves and flees the scene, making him a fugitive.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, and uh, as before, so one of the the real strengths in the fugitive is when Tommy Lee Jones is introduced. Uh, he, he they establish his competence very early on, but it's not at anyone's expense. Like the when when he shows that he's smarter and more dedicated than like the uh, the county sheriff's uh, at, at the train wreck. You know, he, the county sheriffs, just they just look like people who are trying to close a case. Uh, whereas you know he wants to get his man, but in this movie, I think it holds it back that when we see the county sheriffs at this uh, plane crash site, they don't know what the hell they're doing, and Tommy Lee Jones has to like reluctantly come in and start a competent investigation. I really do not like that. I don't Is it buy just because it's too forced. I mean, it feels
0: like. the the southern yokels in um, some of the James in uh, oh gee some of the James Bond movies right well
1: well they seem well it's like it they come off so badly it makes you wonder how the hell did they get this job and how the hell did they keep it
0: now we need to send uh, two people up there by the chicken shack and uh, they'll catch him when he's hungry people like chicken yeah I mean it's it's pretty stereotypical and you get Tommy Lee Jones does a speech that almost comes off as a parody of his famous speech from the first film.
1: Yeah, rattling off you know how far he could have gotten with a head start, whether he's going south or north. Uh, but they, uh, they're, they're using a fried this is where this actually leads into that whole barbecue discussion because they' uh, they're as headquarters for this manhunt, they're using this uh, barbecue shack. Uh, and it's great. So we get the, you know, the feds show up and they demand that uh, because this guy's a federal criminal that uh, they need to have uh, a Robert Downey Jr. attached to their team just, you know, to monitor and re- observe, sort of an observe and report kind
0: of thing. Right. And uh, around this time is when we get introduced to Robert Downey Jr., who's an FBI agent who uh, some of his friends were, were killed by the Wesley Snipes character and the big thing that went down. Um, or so he claims. Or so he claims. And Robert Downey Jr. in this role, um, you know, this is way before Iron Man, of course. He's, he's okay. He tries to play the too cool for school thing, but I don't think he quite pulls it off. Well, he,
1: he doesn't have the, the swagger yet that the role probably requires. Like He seems, he seems detached rather than cool.
0: Right. Uh, like, he doesn't want to be there, and according to interviews at the time, he really didn't. He said, in retrospect, he wishes he would have done a children's movie, like something his son would have enjoyed, um, given his mental state at the time, which oh. is honest, but and it does the movie no favors. So he's... he's a, he was a talented actor. I mean, uh, around this time, he did movies like the Charlie Chaplin movie, just called Chaplin. Um, he did a lot of, like, indie films. He did... Uh, you know, so he was a known entity, but he wasn't the superstar he is today.
1: <laughs> True, but but actually, I was I was going through this, so like, uh, so we have, uh, we have Robert Downey Jr. who goes on to play Iron Man, uh, but then we have Tommy Lee Jones who plays a general in Captain America: The First Avenger, but also plays Agent K in Men in Black, which was a Marvel comic book. Based mm-hmm. in a Marvel comic book because Marvel had bought out Malibu, where the comic was first printed. Uh, then we got Wesley Snipes, who was Blade. So, Mar- so this movie prefigures the Marvel Cinematic Universe on several counts.
0: Right. In fact, uh, you might say Tommy Lee Jones's character could be like a a distant, somewhat distant relative of um, his character from Captain America. Could be the son. <laughs> That or that general or uh, whatever ranking he was,
1: um, but uh, yeah. we we get a pretty fun uh, manhunt in the swamp.
0: Yeah, I think this is one of the more effective set pieces. So they they go to a lot of the locals want to help get this guy down. So you're on those uh, swamp boats, and well, it, the funny thing is they, they they make a big deal about getting swamp boats,
1: but they're just they're just boats without board motors. It's not like they're they're those. Uh, they're, they're not those ones with the giant fans.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're not as they're not ones that are super fast and, yeah, that can be more of a use. That's a great point. Um, but I, I like that it's a different setting for this kind of a scene, especially in this series. And you get a lot of uh, kind of like a mystery. You don't know where he is because there's not good visuals. And uh, also because they have civilians driving him out on these little motorboats. Um, they don't really know what they're doing either. So they're having to be told how to, you know, shoot a flare or do whatever. And, and, uh, Robert Downey Jr. sees, catches up to Wesley Snipes first and is told to stand down, to not chase after him until everyone else, until he gets back up.
1: And, and this of course is, uh, well, you know, le- f- leads into, uh, you know, him actually being one of the bad guys, uh. Although I'm, I, although I guess you know, if, if they'd gone with the original script and Wesley Snipes was in fact guilty, then I guess this would have been him just being like a hotshot agent with something to prove. But right. I really, I just really like that where he's just surveying the trees with his binoculars, and there's Wesley Snipes in a tree.
0: And yeah, his move a- and his
1: like move where he tries to get behind the tree is just so smooth. Uh, it's it's really fascinating seeing him use his character's uh, wilderness survival skills in this. And and I love that that Robert Downey Jr. knows to look in a tree because he knows what kind of wilderness survival training this guy has. Right.
0: You get a bit of foreshadowing with this and uh, a scene a little bit earlier where Tommy Lee Jones is giving Robert Downey Jr. shit and cuffs him. And then Robert Downey Jr. takes the glasses off of Joe Pantoliano and uses the same move Wesley Snipes did earlier to pick the or oh, to pick the, uh, lock, pick the lock yeah and in, in fact in scenes like that you see Tepard Lee Jones laughing and you know trying to lighten up his character a bit but in a lot of ways this does not feel like the same character he had from The Fugitive I don't know there's something missing
1: he's he's a little bit looser like I I yeah, really wish yeah. he, I wish he was just more man with a difficult job like I think I think that you know what that's what this movie needs it it needs an I don't care moment
0: Right, yeah, and and you don't get that. It it feels they because they spend more time with Tommy Lee Jones and less time with Wesley Snipes. Um, you don't feel as sympathetic towards Wesley Snipes. They do throw in he has like a, a love story with uh, Marie played by Irene uh, Jacob, um, who is a French actress and and she's good, but again isn't developed that well. So it's more like you know, oh, they're both in the ch- women's changing room and they exchange information, but it's... Because The Fugitive it, it did... And I didn't spend so much time on this, but it spent enough time for you to feel sorry for the character. It um, This one, it tries to keep you guessing, I think, to, to not great effect.
1: Well, I think I think part of it is like, well, if he's guilty, then she's an accomplice. If If he's not guilty, then she's willing to go way out of her way for love. And I think... I, I I think it would have been it, it would have been nice to sort of establish. I guess yeah. I guess the movie doesn't exactly establish who she is, other than being a woman who cares for for Wesley Snipes. Um, I, I think she needs she needs just a little
0: something to flesh her out. I think
1: is what's missing.
0: Right. Also in the Fugitive, you had a lot of characters saying how much Harrison Doctor Kimball Harrison Ford's character was. he's so smart, you will never catch him. Blah blah blah. And you don't get that. Here. Yeah, nobody nobody
1: talks up Wesley Snipes when really they should. I mean, he's he mm-hmm. he, he plays. Uh, a stone badass although i do like that they are willing to show like what a badass he is I And mean, then we got the wilderness survival training there's a, a bit where he he gets a bunch of money out of a safety deposit box and secures a uh secures a, a room in an apartment that's like right across the street from the united nations So i can't imagine how high that rent is um but he does all this stuff where he sets up like security cameras all over his building, and he's rappelling right. on the building to get them at just these precise angles, and we see him, you know, dealing with his footage. I mean, we we get to see him. We, we he's he's playing a character with a lot of skills, and we see just about all of them. And one of the one of the ones that I really really like. So that whole swamp chase scene, he gets away from Robert Downey Jr., but. Uh, but Tommy Lee Jones gets him oh no cuz cause he, cause he takes Robert Downey Jr hostage and you know Tommy Lee Jones has him cornered and is trying to talk him down and it harkens back to the whole hostage situation from the first film and Tommy Lee uh, and Tommy Lee Jones gets shot by Wesley Snipes and later when we see uh, Tommy Lee Jones uh, recovering in the hospital you know he he points out is like you know he 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 tried to kill you he missed no, he hit me exactly where the vet, the Kevlar would take the impact. Hmm. Like I love that where he's where he's thinking something must be going on because he clearly was not trying to kill me. He did not want a death on his hands. So so something's going on. Why would a guilt Why would a guilty man do that? And I kind of wish they came back to this. But there's a great scene where Tommy Lee Jones is holding the slugs that were pulled out of his Kevlar. And just kind of contemplating with them, I I wish that came back uh, some uh, another way.
0: Yeah, because it it sets up you get scenes where it's like, oh, you know, you're you're getting too old for this, and of course he has to go back in the fray because he's the he's Gerard, he's a determined man, right? He likes he loves his job, Um, and and we get another big action set piece in the the cemetery.
1: Well, before, before the cemetery, there's a really tense. Uh, so they, they catch, they manage to, to figure out where Tommy Lee Jones is in New York, and he goes on the run. And there's a great chase scene where they chase Timothy Jones, or where they chase Wesley Snipes through a hospital and through an assisted living facility. And it's, it's tense. Well, one, it's an environment you don't often see action set pieces in. Uh, but it's also a weird confined space. Things are very much at stake because you got a lot of old people around. Uh, everyone's in a panic. I kept waiting. So there's a showdown in the room of a world war two vet. Who's got an oxygen tank. I kept waiting for the explosive qualities of oxygen to come into play, but thankfully it didn't. Um, And there's some amazing set design because they never tell you he's a World War II veteran, but there's all these indicators in the room that kind of imply that there's a whole rich backstory to this old man. He's got that World War II veteran's cap on a shelf. There are framed newspaper clippings about different allied victories on the wall of battles. Oh, and they're all in the European theater, so presumably they're battles and and troop movements that he was a part of. But this is when... Uh, this is when uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s true colors uh, come forward because he has Wesley Snipes uh, and is about to kill him. And then one of the the deputy marshals comes in, uh, sees this, and so Robert Downey Jr. shoots the marshal with Wesley Snipes' gun. Mm. And this is and, and this is you know a character that we liked in both movies is, is now dead, and and I did feel that it did feel
0: like a meaningful death. Yeah, and it, it gives them um, motivation. As, gee, you know, like as we go on, they, uh, so when, that scene at the cemetery, I was hinting at earlier, um, it has to do with him, if I get this right, and I could be a little confused, it has to do with the, um, Chinese, Chinese, consulate person that was originally involved in the whole fracas that got Wesley got that got the uh, murders pinned on Wesley Snipes to begin with
1: yeah because because the uh the cemetery is where is apparently where the is one of their drop points like there's like a, a panel in the wall of a crypt where uh like documents are placed and Wesley Snipes manages to catch one of the CIA moles there and so, this is a man who can clear his name, but then it turns out there's a Chinese sniper on the roof, and and all and the and the marshals show up, and all hell breaks loose. The only thing now, I liked, I liked this scene. I think there was a lot of tension in the cemetery shootout scene. A lot of stuff is at stake. Um, we also get to see a lot of bullet impacts. We get to see some tombstones chewed up by bullets. Now, of course, they're prop tombstones but it's shot in such a way where I had to remind myself, oh, no, they didn't actually shoot up a cemetery. The only thing that holds this scene back is that there's bad comedy because they keep cutting back to two deputy marshals in a van stuck in New York traffic, unable to make it to the shootout.
0: Yeah, it does take something away from it. It's also worth noting that, like the scene in the bayou before, this is an action scene in broad daylight.
1: Oh, you know that's true. Yeah, you can, and you can see everything,
0: which I think makes it less tense. I think, think of all the stuff in the fugitive movie, which has less action than this one does. But um, him running away from the train—that's at night. The the fight on the uh, on the rooftop of the the building where they're doing the um, the presentation—that's at night. You have him doing an investigation of the day, but then you have the action at night. But here, a lot of the action is in broad daylight, and I think it it makes things visually look a bit flat. Um, it, it is sort of neat with the cemetery shootout that, like, it's sort of a, a three-way battle back and forth and, and so forth. I think that's somewhat interesting. But at the end of the day, you, uh, Wesley Snipes gets away yet again. And he has this ridiculous disguise with long hair. Oh, yeah, I can't, I was talking about that. Like, he, looked, he looks...
1: I, I, and my initial impression was he looks like he's turning into a werewolf when he's in his disguise uh-huh. with his bad wig and his mustache. But the more I look at it, the more I realize, no, he's Eddie Murphy's vampire in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, you're right. With the long hair, with the facial hair, it's uh, it's not a great disguise. It's a bit too cartoonish. <laughs> he probably could have just had a mustache and that would have worked okay. Um.
1: Be, I mean, a mustache and a hat, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, and sunglasses. Like that. I think that'll than enough. So he he runs off from the scene, and they are chasing him down. But when they do, they find that one of uh, Tommy Lee Jones's men has been killed.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Which, this is a big motivator that makes Tommy Lee Jones darker and a bit. He seems to have put a bit more into his performance at this point. But, because um, Robert Downey Jr. claims, like, oh, uh, Sheridan did it. You know, the Wesley Snipes character did it. And um, sort of setting up uh, the uh, events of the end of the film. In which you have a pretty uh, amazing practical stunt that, I think, I'm, the way it's shot, like, it's so quick, you don't really see what's happening where Wesley Snipes is on top of a building, and he jumps off. Oh,
1: yeah, but he's got, like, a rope on a pulley, and he does this yeah. he does this fancy Batman swing, and you think he's going to land on an uh, uh, above-ground train, well, again, a theme in this franchise, but, no, he misses the train and lands on the rooftop of the train station, but then he does this great run to jump onto the train, and there's this just awesome shot where he gets on the train, he realizes he's gotten away, and he just sits down on top of this moving yes. train to catch his breath. I love that shot.
0: What a nice moment! What uh, I mean that they did that effect practically, which you had to in those days. Um, it took months and months of rehearsal for a, a scene that, according to Internet Movie Database, is only like seven seconds long. Mm, yeah. So now you, you know they have to go through all the research and figure out where. He ha- where he's gone, and they find there's there's a, a port with a ship that has cargo that has a few passenger things on it, and um, the U.S. marshals, led by Tommy Lee Jones, track down Wesley Snipes on this boat.
1: Oh yeah, and there's a and there's a, a there's an interesting fight scene where they're they're fighting in a. a... A, a grain silo in the, or a cargo hold full of, that's being filled with grain. Uh, and I just, for whatever reason, when I saw that, I just thought, how ironic. I knew when I first met you that we would end up trying to kill each other in a vat full of shelled sunflower seeds.
0: Yeah, visually it's weird. It's almost It almost looks like they're sinking in sand or whatever, and there's a scene where it looks like Tommy Lee Jones is going to choke Wesley Snipes to death. By forcing his neck down into the grain. Uh, meanwhile, you have like twenty people goo going up above, looking at what's at the fight scene, which seems ridiculous. Well, I think I think the
1: implication is that this boat has something to do with the the mole and the selling of state secrets, because it does have a connection to the Chinese cultural attaché that that was that was doing a lot of the transfers of of, of secrets and money. Um, so I can only assume that they are in some way part of that conspiracy and know not to ask questions. But, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is there. And at the, you know, at the height of the fight, he shoots, uh, he, you know, he shoots Wesley Snipes well, uh, from, the, t- from the, the edge of the, ve- of the uh, cargo hold, but then he also he fires a hell of a lot of, a lot of times trying to hit uh, Tommy Lee Jones you know, right. the implication being that he knows Tommy Lee Jones is on to him and so he's going to try to make it look like they both were shot uh, in the chaos of the fight uh, although he misses Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that Tommy Lee Jones didn't at least get a flesh wound
0: but you think they'd have a thing of him getting shot again? Because it goes the the real um, climax of the picture is they are in uh, getting medical treatment. Well,
1: they're in a they're in a hospital. Uh, yeah, yeah they're, so uh, uh, Wesley Snipes is, is uh, on a hospital. He's just been saved from his wounds, uh, and Tommy Lee Jones is just you know talking with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and asking to see different bits of evidence. And he notices that one of the bits of evidence is the same is like either the same gun or the same kind of gun that Robert Downey Jr. uses, but with the serial numbers removed. And this is kind of what clinches it for him. Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones manages to get the entire floor clear uh, and says he's going to go off and get some coffee. So Robert Downey Jr. goes in and he's going to kill Wesley Snipes. But then Tommy Lee Jones shows up. Uh, there's a whole uh, there's a whole fight. And when Robert Downey Jr. tries to shoot Tommy Lee Jones, he can't because, Rob, because Tommy Lee Jones switched the ammo clips for the pistols so that he doesn't have the right kind of ammo in his gun so he can't shoot.
0: Yeah, that, that's an okay moment. I mean, they, they set that up pretty blatantly in the earlier scene where they're comparing guns. Um, because well, I think earlier, it doesn't... Like,
1: they cut back to that scene, actually, uh, during all this. I, I kind of don't think they needed to.
0: Yeah, they're trying to make it pretty on the nose. I, I, I do like the scene. Robert Downey Jr.'s one good scene in the movie is when he goes to Wesley Snipes, who is injured in bed, and starts, like, ripping the medical... Uh, Equipment, equipment off of him. He's pulling up. Wesley Snipes is injured and clearly can't do that much. And I think both the actors do a pretty good job in that scene.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you know, Robert Robert Downey Jr. does uh does get uh, does get shot. uh, You know, uh, Wesley Snipes gets uh, gets exonerated things kind of things kind of work out but again I do wish this so there's a very powerful scene in the first movie where it's Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford in the back of the cab kind of having yes. that moment of reconciliation I wish this movie had the same thing uh, with Tommy Lee Jones and Wesley Snipes instead all it has is Wesley Snipes on the floor of his hospital room saying I'm going back to bed and then just passing out That is that's weak sauce right there
0: I think the closest they kind of get to what you're talking about is at the end. They're they're on the steps, walking out of the courthouse, and uh, uh, Wesley Snipes apologizes for shooting Tommy Lee Jones, and Tommy Lee Jones is like, uh, "Oh, that's okay. I would have done the same thing if I was in your shoes." I mean, it, it, it doesn't. It's not as good of a line of dialogue, but they're trying to get that same sentiment. And it, it does seem to wrap up a little bit too quickly. I would have liked to see some of the court case. Really. Yeah, you could have done some just something to give Wesley Snipes more to do, or have a big, a better reveal of this whole conspiracy, other than you know detective work and finding stuff out in this sort of dim hospital room.
1: Huh?
0: It, I, I thought it should have ended on a bigger note. I don't think it quite. Cause, I mean, really, like your final mono a mono fight is in a grain silo or in a grain <laughs> thing. I mean, it's pretty lame. It, it doesn't... After you've done the big cemetery shootout, after the big bayou thing... Okay, no, that's true. This, after the cemetery is shootout, that
1: that is a, that is a anti-climactic.
0: Yeah. Uh, like, maybe you, you move stuff around, have that towards the end might have been better, but it's... And at the end, I just felt like... Uh, I, I'll give sequel no to this movie. This movie isn't terrible, but I think it's sort of a waste of your time. No, no, it is a waste of your time, because <laughs> it... Everyone just feels like they're on autopilot and going through the motions. You don't have a strong core plot as The Fugitive. And uh, that, that Bayou scene, um, I think, is probably the, the best one in the movie. You could probably just watch that on YouTube and be fine. Uh, but I... And I don't know how you could make this concept work. I'm not really sure. Would it have to be a series of movies where every time Robert Downey, June, or uh, Tommy Lee Jones, tracks down another innocent man because he's so incompetent, Like, what, what does that have to, where do you go from that? This, The Fugitive is a tough thing. You know, I think if you were to do, like, a real sequel to The Fugitive, you would have it be about, I don't know, The Fugitive's, uh, Dr. Kimball's child or something gets falsely (laughs) accused. But, I mean, there's only so much you can do with this premise before it just gets ridiculous. Um well you know i fo- I found
1: this movie okay i found I found it reasonably entertaining reasonably complex reasonably well acted like it cer- it certainly wouldn't be like my first choice but if I was flipping through the dial and this was on i I might just stop and watch it okay I- I'm um, not giving it a sequel yes because I'm done i don't want to see any more but but like i don't like i don't consider this a disaster I don't consider this a bad movie. I consider this a movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it. It hits hits
1: a satisfying
0: middle. Okay. But just barely. So I have an idea in mind that I can do for a pitch a sequel for this one. Oh, yes? I think you would have, um... Since this one focused on Tommy Lee Jones, I assume you'd continue that track. And, uh... Gerard is visiting his, um ancient family estate in France, which also has a, a Girard vineyard. Oh. And he's with the U.S. Marshals enjoying wine overseas. He sort of, you know... Uh, he brought his whole them. team with him? What? Yeah, he brought the whole team. You know, he just decided <laughs> to to treat them. Instead of treating them to chicken fingers at the bar, he, he says, you know, why don't we go to my family winery and, and they're enjoying it. But then someone on his team drinks the wine... In the tasting room at the end of the six-hour tour, and immediately is dead and is poisoned, and so you would have kind of a lower stakes sort of murder mystery um, set in France, and it would be called U.S. Marshals colon Red Red Wine, (laughs) (laughs) and the end credits would have that song, Red Wine. Red, red wine. Is the, the wine tea. isn't red
1: because... <laughs> because you're sad. <laughs> you're sad because the wine is red.
0: The wine isn't red because of the grapes, honey. It's red because you're sad. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think you would have the scene where the person starts dying... One of the U.S. Marshals, let's make it Joey a character, um, he's drinking the wine, the tasting is a white wine, and all of a sudden his, his throat seizes up, he starts coughing up blood, and you see the blood spitting into the white wine, making the white wine red. <laughs> a, a, a little visual flourish. And then he just, like, collapses. And I think the idea is, instead of, like, this big assassination, this is this more sneaky poisoning, and then you, you learn... Uh, and you learn connections of the... Actually, George relatives that are running this winery have ancient connections to the Knight Templars... <laughs> and it's this big, it's this big multi uh, generational uh, conspiracy. Is Opus Day somehow involved? Um, Opus Day is involved. You also have Francis Ford Coppola plays himself in a cameo um, as he's walking through the vineyards, drinking the wine, and says like, "This is almost as good as my as my wine." <laughs>
1: Can Dan Aykroyd be there to compare the virtues of the wine to the virtues of <laughs> vodka served out of a crystal skull?
0: Yeah, in fact, that would be a scene um, at, at the beginning of the movie. I think what, what inspires him to take his whole crew with him to his family estate uh, vineyard in, in France is he's there at the bar and, and sees a skull and thinks it's kind of gruesome, and they explain it's it, it's the Dan Aykroyd crystal skull for vodka and Dan Ackroyd <laughs> pops up from behind the bar and does a sales pitch and Tommy Lee Jones drinks it says well this is good but what I, what I could really use is some wine and then as he looks in, uh, in the bar's uh, collection he notices the Gerard Vineyard and he raises an eyebrow and then you, fade, you crossfade <laughs> into an airplane with this whole crew flying over um, and so, also yeah. the
1: Smothers Brothers are there to talk about their wine <laughs>
0: Yes, you have. And uh, it turns out on the airplane, uh, not only is there the Smothers Brothers, there's Sam Neill, there's Callum McLaughlin, all these actors <laughs> with their own vendors <laughs> that, that, that go and, and, uh, and they start comparing notes. Oh. And in the last shot of the movie, is is they find out, you know, the whole conspiracy who murdered the U.S. Marshal while they're overseas and so forth. Dan Aykroyd. And they, Dan Aykroyd um, gets. In an ironic scene, he gets his skull smashed in with his very own bottle of skull crystal vodka. <laughs> and the last the last scene, you know, it's, it's a ceremony of sorts giving Tommy Lee Jones uh, not only a stake in his family vineyard, but they introduce a limited uh, run wine called The Fugitive.
1: <laughs> run away with flavor.
0: Yeah, run away with flavor, and uh, it, uh, Tim Lee Jones takes a sip, and he says, This is better than any hen house, horse house, blah, blah, blah. You know, he, sort of a, a goof on his line. <laughs> and so, that, yeah, that, that's mine. U.S. Marshall's red, red wine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, this is so mine is gonna be, my pitch of sequel is gonna be based on an observation uh, that my wife had that in the first film we had a train wreck, that is a wreck by land. Uh, and in this scene we had a plane crash. That is a that is a disaster by air. So next movie it's gotta be water. So the next mm. movie Tommy Lee Jones is tra- it's overseeing the transfer of international prisoners wanted by Interpol to a special offshore uh, super prison. Uh, however, on the way there, the boat gets hit by a, a submarine and it flips over, and the criminals escape. And he has to and he has to round them up, but he has to do it on the high seas. So. Tommy Lee Jones, the U.S. Marshals, and a bunch of international crime fighters commandeer a uh, commandeer a sub and start tracking down underwater criminals. And it turns out this is all part of an elaborate scheme to steal all the world's oil from offshore drillings because all of the escaped criminals have now turned into submarine pirates uh, and are attacking uh, oil drilling platforms.
0: Is this one called U.S. Marshals' Oil's Well That Ends Well? Uh... No, this one
1: is going to be called... Uh, this is going to be called uh, Interpol, the Sigma Invective. Because you can't have the same title. Because there's no fugitive in this title, so the next it's one fair. has to have a title that disguises the fact that it's part of a franchise.
0: And, and who do you think would play the the head of the criminals? Um, it would... Actually,
1: it would be... Uh, it would be Robert Downey Jr. but playing the brother of the character he played in U.S. Marshals, and it's a, it's a whole Die Hard three situation.
0: Okay, yeah, uh,
1: and he does play a game of riddles uh, with the, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones, but Tommy Lee Jones does call in some help. Uh, Harrison Ford will have a cameo, but Wesley Snipes actually like airlifts down from a helicopter to join this international criminal hunt.
0: I like that idea. It's it's pretty neat. Did do you do get any cameos from Harrison Ford? Oh yeah, yeah, he'll he will have a cameo.
1: He'll it'll be a, it'll be like Reginald Val Johnson in Die Hard 2, it'll just be a phone call.
0: <laughs> he will literally phone it in. I see. He uh, maybe someone's maybe someone on the ship gets injured and Harrison Ford calls to tell them how to fix the injury.
1: So so that is my pitch for Interpol, the Sigma Invective, the sequel to US Marshals, which was the sequel to the Fugitive.
0: Very good. All right, so uh, next week we're going to talk about the film Waxworks, but before that, we're going to move, before we end the show, we're going to move on to uh, a segment we call What You're Watching, which we talk about a piece of media we've consumed over the past week.
1: So um, after, so we, we talked a lot, both this episode and, and the previous episode, about the Leslie Nielsen comedy Wrongfully Accused. Yes. So uh, I did not watch that. Though I did watch a clip of the train scene uh, which I find delightful. Um, but what I did watch was a, a lesser known Leslie Nielsen film uh, back before, I think believe made back before he transitioned to comedy uh, and that is the, uh, the low budget horror film Day of the Animals. Okay. And I mean, it's it's kind of everything you want in a 70s, uh, 70s disaster movie, uh, aside from casual nudity. But the premise, and it even opens with a text crawl explaining this, so the premise is um, ozone depletion caused by aerosol cans has caused high-altitude areas to be bathed in excessive ultraviolet radiation, which causes animals to go insane. Hmm. So... It's all set in this mountain town where every animal just goes crazy and starts attacking people and there's kind of there's kind of some parallel action going on between law enforcement what's going on in the town and what's going on on a hiking trail because there's this guy that leads these kind of in-depth survival training type camping camping excursions where you get dropped just in the middle of a mountaintop and have to kind of hike your way back to civilization. And Leslie Nielsen is one of the tourists on this hiking group. It also includes uh, a retired businessman, uh, a Boy Scout and his mother, uh, a uh, senator, I guess maybe a deputy senator, some, somebody somebody who is in an, elect, in an elected pos- uh, position. But anyway, Leslie Nielsen uh, plays... He, he basically plays the old asshole on the team or on, on this hiking excursion and he keeps calling everybody hotshot sometimes as an insult sometimes as an affectionate nickname but when the animals start attacking Leslie Nielsen goes real crazy, real fast and he essentially becomes the real villain of the movie I see. He starts killing people, he declares himself the leader of the exp- expedition, he rips off his shirt and starts demanding people obey him and he starts like ch- he starts challenging God in <laughs> these weird monologues. Hmm. And and it's one of those things like if you've never seen him in a leading man role, I can't imagine what you might think of this performance. But as somebody who's seen both his dramatic and comedic work, I found it fascinating to see him in this kind of transitional role.
0: Yeah, I think the only non-comedy I've seen Leslie Nielsen as was the science fiction classic Forbidden Planet. Oh, which is so good. And it's not mm-hmm. available on streaming anywhere. That seems odd, really. Not, not streaming or... Hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, Pretty cool. Yeah, I, I've i been up to check that out. It's a pretty unique premise for uh, that kind of a disaster movie. So, um, it, so, do they, are the animals like puppets or are they real animals or...? Uh, no they're they're actually they're all real animals to the
1: point where I I did not sit through the credits but I can't like I I feel like animals had to have been hurt in the making of this film like there are so many practical effects and so many animal stunts I feel like some animal had to have been injured I certainly hope no animal was injured but this movie is so in your face with the animal violence. I would not at all be surprised if, like, a vulture died on set.
0: I see. Um, neat. So, we'll just have to see what goes on there. Um, pretty cool. We'll have to check that one out. Uh, So, I, I, uh, have been playing a video game that I've been waiting for, for, I think it's been almost, like, 15 years since the last one came out. Huh. Um... And what I'm talking about is Kingdom Hearts 3. Oh, yeah. My wife's been playing that. Yeah, oh, really? Okay. Um, So I I haven't, I'm only like three hours into the game, I'm not that far. Kingdom Hearts 2 came out in 2006. This one came out 13 years later in uh, 2019. And, um, however, in between there, there's a lot of uh, sequels and prequels that came out for like Nintendo DS and PSP and all these things. And on the PlayStation platform, at least, they have done a good job of... If they can't port the older games, they at least have um, remastered versions of the cutscenes from the old games, so you know what the plot is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's only on the PlayStation platform those compilations, unfortunately. But Kingdom Hearts 3 does come with a very short 20-minute kind of recap of the series that doesn't really cover all that much. And uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 looks great, right? I think it looks very, very good... It plays a lot like a spiffed up version of Kingdom Hearts 2, but it also feels like, because this game's been in development for so long, it feels like a PlayStation 2 action game that happens to be on a modern platform. Hmm. And I I say that because the camera is is goofy, it's not very good. You have a lot of. The camera's goofy! Yeah, well, Goofy is in it too. Um, (laughs) This series gets. the plot gets more convoluted with each entry. And certainly, if you've only played Kingdom Hearts 2 and go into this one, you have no idea what's going to happen. I have only played Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, and then the PSP prequel, Birth by Sleep. And I was still kind of lost, even with spending the past six hours um, listening to podcasts to try and catch up on the plot. But on a surface level of you play these anime guys that team up with Donald and Goofy to go through different Disney and Pixar worlds, it... It's effective, it's very colorful. Um, I'm not that far into it, but like it's a Kingdom Hearts game. I don't know. What does your wife think about it? Uh, she uh, overall she's enjoying it. Does she have much of a history with the series or She
1: uh, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, she's played she's played the f- uh, the first two and I think the uh, Kingdom Hearts, the original Kingdom Hearts is the first game she ever played to completion.
0: Oh wow, okay. Um, so with, with Kingdom Hearts 3, there was just a funny moment. I was in a, a place not that far and a few hours into the game, and Donald and Goofy are... A lot of the game revolts around these characters called Heartless, and if someone is good-hearted or not, and if they have clones or, or copies of their heart make other avatars or whatever. It gets very, very complicated. Yeah, please, please there, stop, there's a lo-
1: because I, I, yes. I've watched a video trying to explain the narrative of, of these games and how they all fit together, yeah. and all it did was remind me of why I typically don't play JRPGs.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's that to the nth degree, certainly. And um, there's a line of dialogue where I think Goofy says something like, well, you can hate like hate and love can be the same thing sometimes and that's wife, fucked up it is it, in a thing with like and my wife walks in and, and her day job is a counselor at a women's crisis shelter and she just pauses for a solid 10 seconds and yeah, goes i would in, too. In some cases, horrible it, line, right, and the fact uh, that it's coming out of beloved
1: character Goofy, yes. a single father, might I add, <laughs> that is, that is, like, that borders on the horrific. Uh,
0: yeah, and I, they, they give it some context. I think what what it might be a translation thing, I think what they're trying to say is someone can be bad and good at the same time, but the way it comes out, like, my my wife was just stunned, and she just sort of said, well, that can be true sometimes, but it's a very strange thing to say. <laughs> but, okay, Especially
1: sometimes, hate and love are the same thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, just the fact that it's coming out of the mouth of a Disney character, or yeah. actually <laughs> the fact that any of the lines are coming out of the, <clears throat> the mouths of Disney characters is is very very
0: surreal. <laughs> In the beginning, like Mickey Mouse has like a lot more dialogue than in, than the other games, as far as I know, and he's saying all these weird things like, hmm, "I wonder if darkness has consumed his soul," and like, "What the hell? Stop <laughs> it!" Like, I don't care if you have your anime characters saying this shit, but like, the more um, the more the Disney characters say the convoluted anime dialogue, it, it like the wackier it gets. Like, I don't quite understand it. I'm certainly gonna beat it. I'm, I'm having a fun time with it. But one thing I do want to point out, which is between after the first, before you get uh, when well, you finish the first world and there's a boss fight, and then you have cutscenes with a few battle sequences, and it's to my count um, almost 90 minutes until you actually get to another save point. Damn. Which is uh, they don't do that in games anymore, nor should they. At least give the option to save between cutscenes. What I had to do when I played it last night is I reload my saved game. I had to skip, like, five cutscenes, do a battle I already played, and then sit and watch the other six cutscenes before it let me have control again. Oh, that's rough. What What Kingdom Hearts should be is not a video game. They should do an anime series of it. I'm surprised they haven't. <laughs> they, uh, you know, they, they've done some pretty good uh, manga, you know, comics of it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's... One year,
1: somebody on YouTube has probably taken all the cutscenes from the games and has tried to edit them together into something coherent.
0: Right. Um, But yeah, having Goofy uh, espouse why hatred is a good thing is something I'll I'll never live down. That's very, very odd. I imagine (laughs) I'll see worse examples as the game goes on. Uh, Also, within the first world, uh, within... 10 minutes, you get two insurance claim jokes from Goofy. are <laughs> pretty, so it's, uh, this isn't really a spoiler, but you're on, like, um, I don't want to say what a movie, you're, you're on an area where, like, there's flames and monsters attacking, and, like, twice, Goofy goes, Gosh, I hope there you got insurance.
1: I may have, I have <laughs> a high deductible, but at least I get to choose my own doctor.
0: Good thing they don't have Donald care. What do you mean there's a $25 copay? Yeah, um, I I like Donald Duck the most in this series because he's just an asshole who doesn't seem to care what's going on. So he's true to character. (laughs) Yes, he is. Yep. And any time the main character, Sora, is having problems, he blames Sora for them he never he never takes responsibility so that that's my long-winded thoughts in kingdom parts three despite all that i'm i'm enjoying it but it's um it's surprising that disney lets another company do this stuff with their characters and the reason why is because they they sell a lot of they make a lot of money but oh uh, obviously but it's still strange all right so how um, long do you
1: think we'll have to wait for the next one
0: well, the next numbered entry, you mean? Or the next Kingdom Hearts game? The, the next numbered entry. I'm sure Hearts next Ford?
1: year we'll have another uh, Kingdom Hearts game on a different platform. I, Probably I, a I mobile bet platform. You're right.
0: uh, yeah. They already have one on the mobile platform that's a port of a PC browser game that was Japan only. But I yeah. anyway, um, I would say, uh, I'd give it six years. I would say two console generations from now, we'll see a four. Hmm. On the playstation 6 or the xbox whatever the hell, like 1 million whatever they call it um
1: it'll be like xbox alpha or xbox prime that's where my money is
0: given the way they go yes i uh i do feel sorry for those um retail employees that have to explain the difference between the different versions of xbox and playstation to people because they've made it fairly confusing
1: Oh, God, yeah, I, I've I've been in that position.
0: <laughs> Xbox One, Xbox One X.
1: I, I still remember the time I, I had to explain to somebody that putting a PS2 disc in a PS3 did not update the PS2 game's graphics to a PS3 level of high-definition quality.
0: Ah. Uh, and th- it, it, this would have been when... Because the launch PlayStation 3, you could play PS2 games on it.
1: Oh that! Oh God, yeah. That, that comp- those compatibility issues are a whole other story. But
0: uh... all right. So um, next week we'll be talking about Waxwork, Woo. the the first of a duology of films I've never seen, but I've heard they're very interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yep. And then after that we'll be looking at the Terminator movies. So we got plenty to keep us busy. Oh yeah. Um, Just don't get in our light. Right. So, uh, you. Uh, so it's our time to plug things. Thrasher. What do you want to plug?
1: I'm uh, just going to plug my Twitter feed. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, let me see. I don't have any. Uh, don't have any new releases to talk about. But if you still haven't picked up a copy, uh, check out uh, Wrath and Glory from Ulysses North America. It's the new Warhammer Forty Thousand tabletop RPG. Uh, I was one of the contributors to that game. I'm very proud of it.
0: Fantastic. Uh, I will be doing a live sequelcast two panel with my friends here in Portland on February twenty third, nice. twenty nineteen at Wizard World Portland. Um, despite that, I know when it is. I'd rather not announce when the panel is because they haven't published the guest schedules yet. Even though the convention is uh, l- l- less than two weeks away. As of this recording, yes. Yeah. As of this recording. So once I get an official thing in a PDF or in a booklet, I will say the date, but I am, you understand what I'm trying to say, have you ever had it where you get a tentative date of when your panel is and they reschedule it? Yes, I have been in that position. Yep, yeah, so I would rather, but if you go, it looks like on Saturday at, at that convention, we'll be ranking the Marvel movies, so I think that'll that'll be somewhat controversial, and uh, it's good timing, because the week after that convention is when Captain Marvel comes out. Oh, Nice. So I went with a populist topic, and it worked. So uh, follow me on Twitter at matwbt.
1: And of course, once again, follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor, and we've got a scene to do.
0: We do have a scene to do. Um, so do you want me to do Tommy Lee Jones since you did him last time?
1: Uh, yes, please. So, so this scene, this is uh, this is after the arrest that opens the film. This is uh, Tommy Lee Jones and his superior officer, uh, Catherine Walsh. Talking about uh, basically talking about the aftermath of that arrest. So we didn't I mean, even we talk we about.
0: Over. We didn't even talk about the character of Catherine Walsh.
1: Well, I mean, she's just there to be his to be his commanding officer. She doesn't really have much of an arc. She's just right. Well, I, you know what, you know what it is is she's there to be a sober voice. But Tommy Lee Jones is uh, Sam Gerard is already such a sober character that it's superfluous. It's a superfluous voice and she she should definitely have a bigger impact than that.
0: Right. So yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's start the scene. All right. Hmm. Never want to be afraid of the obvious. I admire that in a man, Sam. Have I done something?
1: Yeah, you hit your prisoner while he was in handcuffs. That's against the rules. If he had any brains, he'd sue us.
0: He bit one of my kids, and got smacked on the head. So what? So what?
1: Yeah, so what? Twenty-seven stitches.
0: That is so. What he needed smack on the head. That's what he got. And that's our sequel scene. Yep. I like how my Tommy Lee Jones imitation sounded less like Tommy Lee Jones and more like Colonel Sanders. <laughs> which which version of Colonel Sanders? Um, the Randy Quaid animated version, where he was a, a short fellow <laughs> extolling the virtues of. Um, Kentucky hot chicken or whatever. Oh it, man, it, isn't that a thing? Why don't we well, last note, Let's talk about that. Isn't that a thing? There's like Kentucky really spicy fried chicken.
1: Well, I mean,
0: I'll,
1: I honestly don't know because I'm not sure I've ever had you know quote unquote authentic Kentucky chicken. Um, you know, I've I've had hot browns, which is a local delicacy, which I really really like, but. I'm. I'm honestly. Is all the years I've lived here. I'm not sure I've ever picked up on a specific, like, signature way that Kentucky does fried chicken.
0: I might be thinking of something else, but so what? What is that really spicy kind of fried chicken? What the the
1: stuff that they have at uh, at KFC?
0: Yeah. That.
1: Well, okay. So, so. Yeah, I'm probably not the person to ask because Kentucky fried chicken is my least favorite kind of fast food fried chicken.
0: I mean the best kind has to be Popeyes.
1: You know, I think you're right. Or Although your Bojangles comes a close second.
0: Bojangle, yep. Um Popeyes, their biscuits alone I think are worth.
1: Oh the no, whole they're amazing lot. biscuits.
0: Oh hey, Popeyes, named after Popeye Doyle.
1: From French Connection?
0: Yeah. Huh. And they no longer, they or for years, they have not had the license to the Popeye character. Oh, yeah, that lapsed in the 80s. Although, as far as I know, Wimpy's
1: Burgers are still around. E- every now and then, when I'm traveling, I'll still see one on the road.
0: On eBay, you can pick up, and I have strongly considered this once I move into a bigger living area, some of, like, the stained glass um, things of the Popeye characters that used to be in some of the Popeye's restaurants. Huh. There are lamps and so Ooh. forth.
1: Well, this has been the Chicken Cast. Uh, I'm your co-host William
0: Cluckler, and I'm Matt Bradley Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> saying Y'all
1: you know, like that the barbecue sauce with all the vinegar in it?
0: I don't know, man. Hey, you don't really know about the vinegar. What about the molasses? I got a little bit of a sweet tooth from that barbecue. It gets my sweet tooth a sweet poof. Hey, uh, whose food is this? You're under It's the
1: Ghostbusters.
0: <laughs> You're under Are arrest for stealing phantasmagorical chicken. Slimer. <laughs> <laughs> let,
1: let us stop before we embarrass ourselves further.